Good morning and welcome to FAM Church. I am excited that all of you are here today. How many parents are excited that tomorrow is back to school? Okay, how many kids are excited that tomorrow is back to school? Okay, we got one. We got one kid that's, that's happy about that. But uh, I want to tell you about something before I get started in the message. And every Sunday you hear me get up here and you hear me say the church's mission statement. You know, we're here to help lead people of all backgrounds to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Well, we put together a team back in uh, uh, March uh, to kind of revisit our mission statement and kind of look at it and see if this is all it needed to be. And the biggest problem was that with that mission statement was that it was long and hard to remember. People knew what it was, and they knew that it had something to do about with Jesus, but they couldn't remember it. And so we've been working diligently the last few months, and we have a new mission statement. Now, it doesn't, it, it's basically the same thing as our old mission statement, except it's four letters or four words long. And so I think it's something that all of us in this room can remember. Our mission statement is now connecting people to Christ. Can everybody say that? Connecting people to Christ. So if you're at Walmart and somebody says, oh, you go to that fam church, what's that all about? What's it about? Bam. That's way easier than say we're here to help lead people of all backgrounds to become fully devoted followers of Jesus, right? Connecting people to Christ. And, and it's the same principle. We're just here to connect people to Christ. Whether they've been walking with him for 20 years or they don't even know who he is and they've just walked in the doors and they know nothing about church, we are here to connect people with Christ. That's what Fam Church is. That's what we are all about. And uh, if you're here uh, as a first-time guest today, we hope that that's been your experience today, that you've connected with Christ in a new way here in your time. And if you're first time in church, we want to welcome you. If you're here this morning because you found out that the church is a Pokemon gym and you're here to battle it out, that's fine. Battle away. Knock yourself out. But you know what? I think something that's going to be said, something that's going to be said in the message this morning is really going to speak to you. So don't completely disengage because we feel like God has something to say to you this morning. But um, next week, uh, we're going to start a new series on Revelation. Now, everybody's going to get all excited about that. We're going to only do the first three chapters of Revelation. So if you're looking for heads, horns, beasts, dragons, and women riding on them, you will not get that in this series. We're going to be looking at the first three chapters, with half, which have to do with letters that Jesus had uh, John write to the churches. And so that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, but we're going to cover some juicy topics. And so if you've been waiting for me to talk about sex in church, it's coming up in this series, okay? And I'll be sure and let you know so you can tell all of your friends so that this place, because there's two things that you can talk about in church that'll pack the place out, sex and the end times. And if you get them both in the same uh, message, watch out, okay? Because people just love that stuff. But, and I was going to start that today, actually, and what had happened was I was on the phone with a pastor friend of mine, and we were talking. In the middle of the conversation, God just kind of smacked me upside the head and said, this is what I need you to talk about this morning. And so this morning, we're not, gonna start, we're not starting Revelation. Instead, I want to uh, go to the book of Ezekiel. And so if you're familiar with Ezekiel, you're welcome to turn there. Uh, we're going to be in chapters 22 and 33. 33 will be first. And uh, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, he's classified along with the prophets. It's a prophetic book. Um, and he's one of the big three. 
Okay, those of you who are LeBron James fans, you maybe remember the big three when he was down in Miami, him, Chris Bosh, and I always, I can't say Bosh's name without getting my tongue twisted up, and, and Dwayne Wade, they were the big three. Well, this, these guys are the big three of the Bible. You have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah, and you have Ezekiel. They're the big three Old Testament prophets, and, uh, um, they're, uh, and so that's why they're called the big three, because they're the three of the biggest and longest prophetic books, okay? And if you're uh, here this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I have some exciting news for you. This message is not for you. This message is for those who follow Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean check out, though, because our hope and our passion is that you will one day follow Jesus, and so this will be applicable to your life at some point in time. Uh, But before we dig a little deeper into Ezekiel, I have a question for you. Have you ever had to watch something? Like maybe you had to watch somebody's pet when they went on vacation. Anybody been in that spot? Maybe you had to watch somebody's plants. They had a bunch of house plants in the, in the yard or on their lanai or in the house, and they were going to be gone for a while, and so they asked you to take care of their plants. Did anybody ask you to watch something in the oven as it baked? Like maybe you stuck a pizza in the oven, and you had to watch the pizza. Got a great story about Dana watching a pizza. <laughs> I won't, I won't totally embarrass her, but let's say if you were to come to, at, to her after service and ask her about the event with the pizza, what she will tell you is, it's my fault of what happened because I didn't tell her you were supposed to remove the cardboard from the pizza before you put it in the oven, okay? And, uh, but, but, you know, I've had to watch things in my life as well. I remember when I was 13 years old, uh, one of our neighbors asked me to come and watch their kids. Um, and it was the Gross family, and that's not a judgment upon them. Uh, that is actually their last name, the Gross family. I mean, that would be kind of a bummer of a last name to have, right? And I can tell some of you are already thinking of jokes if you had a friend with the last name of Gross. But, but they, they, they needed somebody to babysit their kids one day after school, and it was, uh, it was quite simple. I was to show up at their house a little bit before the bus got there. Uh, the bus was going to drop them off, and I was supposed to watch them for a few hours. And I was, I was pretty excited about this because as a 13-year-old, there weren't many ways for me to make money. And I always would get frustrated because it was always the girls who got to babysit and make money, and the guys just had no way to do it. If it wasn't snowing or somebody's grass didn't need to be cut, you had no way to make some money at 13 years old. So I was really pumped at this opportunity to be able to go over and watch these, these, uh, this family's kids. And so I get over there, and I arrived a little bit early before the kids got off of the bus because I wanted to check out the land. I wanted to scope it out and see what their house was like. And so I got in there and I start, I start kind of checking things out and I discovered something. Hooked up to their TV, they had an Atari 2600. Now, some of you are sitting there going, what is that? It was the state-of-the-art video game system in the 1980s. Okay, and at my house, I did not have an Atari 2600. I had no video game system yet. And so this was the greatest thing in the world. I was babysitting and I was making money and I was going to get to play video games. And so I sat down, and I had played it a lot. I've got a friend, I had a friend named Mike who had, who had this video game system at his house. But there was a big difference between his house and the house I was babysitting at. And that was the size of the TV, okay? Mike had a small TV, but these guys, the grosses, had, I think, the biggest TV that money could buy at the time. I remember walking into their living room and going, dang, this TV is huge, 
And so I was pumped up, man. I was going to put on the video games, and I was going to sit there and play video games on this big TV. I was all excited. And so, so I, I sat down, I start playing, I break out the game Asteroids, I plug it in, and I start playing Asteroids. Well, the girls arrive home. And, of course, every kid, when they get home from school in the afternoon, says what? I'm hungry. Exactly. And so I'm like, well, this is your house. You know where the food's at. I don't. Just go in there. Knock yourself out. Whatever you need. I'm kind of busy playing video games. Okay? And so I'm sitting there playing video games, and they found uh, chocolate bars and marshmallows. Perfect after-school snack, right? Chocolate bars and marshmallows. Well, they destroyed the chocolate bars. There was wrappers everywhere in the kitchen, and they had a marshmallow fight. So literally, there was marshmallows all over the inside of the kitchen. Well, the three hours pass, and suddenly mom walks home. I haven't gotten up from this video game system yet. And and so she comes in, and I think everything's good, and I go in the kitchen, and it looks like a war has happened in there. Marshmallows everywhere, wrappers everywhere. Mom was not very happy. Okay, let's just say that this was the last babysitting job that I got as a teenage boy. Okay? Now... I have gotten a lot better than that at babysitting kids, and so if you ask me to watch your kids, um, I'll do a much better job. However, I still may give them candy bars and marshmallows to eat because what's more fun than bringing kids home that are wired on sugar? It'll be hours of entertainment for you parents, right? Yes. Uh, But I think we've all been in a place where we're supposed to watch something and we drop the ball. And this morning, we're going to look at a time when the people of Judah were supposed to watch something, and even after the whole thing began to unravel before their eyes, they could not get up to watch what they'd been called to watch. The events we're going to look at, uh, and Ezekiel is writing about, they take place in Jerusalem and Judah. However, when Ezekiel wrote this book, he was actually not in Jerusalem or Judea. He was actually in Babylon, okay? How did he get there? Well, here's what happened is uh, Babylon rose up to become this superpower, right? And they decided that they were going to take out the old superpower. Who was the old superpower? Egypt. And so they said, we're going to march our armies from Babylon to Egypt. We're going to fight Egypt. We're going to take them out, and we're going to win that battle. Well, a lot of the nations that surrounded uh, Egypt were, were allies of Egypt. And so Judah was, was near Egypt, and so it was an ally of Egypt. And, and Babylon at first didn't care about all these other allies. They just marched through the land, came in, uh, and fought Egypt. But once they defeated Egypt, they then turned around and went after the allies in the surrounding areas. And so Jerusalem was invaded. Judah was invaded. They came in. The Babylonians broke holes in the walls. They, they grabbed some people and they took them back to Egypt, I mean uh, Babylon, as hostages. And uh, that's where Ezekiel was at. He was part of this group that was taken as hostage to Babylon. And so he was hanging out in Babylon. He wasn't even here in Jerusalem. And so with that uh, background, we're going to go to our, um, our text this morning. And as I said, we are going to start off in Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6. And this is what it says there. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they heed the warnings, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. And so here in chapter 33, God is telling Ezekiel about the watchman. And this was an important role 
to a country's defense back 2,500 years ago. You see, they didn't have the fun things that we have now to kind of watch what's going on, okay? They didn't, have, uh, they didn't have drones that they could fly over the land to see what was going on and scope it out. They didn't have satellites that could pick up the pimple on the back of a tourist as they were sunbathing on the beach. They didn't have airplanes that could fly at 80,000 feet and monitor troop movements and bases and all of those sorts of things. They just didn't have any of that stuff. The way that they had to figure out if an enemy was coming against them was they had these watchmen on the wall. They would literally stand on the wall looking and watching. That was their job to look, to watch for any sort of dust coming up, to watch for anything off in the distance that would tell them an enemy was coming upon the city. And so to have that job, you had to have somebody who was going to be loyal, okay? You had to have somebody who was going to be faithful. You had to have somebody who loved and cared for your city. They had to be vigilant, okay? They had to, they, they had to just know everything that was going on around them because in that position, there was no coffee breaks. In that position, there was no one-hour lunches. In that position, there was no smoke breaks. There was no, none of these kind of things. They were on the wall watching and waiting to see if there was an enemy coming to attack. If there was any sign of coming attack, their job was to blow the trumpet and let the city know things were about to get crazy. And here's what's important about what we're going to be talking about today. If we were to continue to read in chapter 33, we would see that God actually asked Ezekiel to be the watchman over Jerusalem. But there's a problem with that. A few minutes ago, I told you Ezekiel was in Babylon. And Babylon was 500 miles from Jerusalem. And so how was he going to be the watchman of a city that was 500 miles away? That's like God speaking to one of us and saying, hey, guess what? You're the watchman for the city of Atlanta. And you're like, hey, but I live in Mulberry. God's like, no, I, got, I need you to watch Atlanta because, because there's nobody else there to do it. That would be really hard. That would be really challenging. Now, today we have some ways that we can access Atlanta, right? You know, we can, we, can watch, uh, uh, we can go on the internet and see, see cameras that they've got placed out there for traffic or for, for security and for all those sorts of things. And so we can see the things that are maybe going on in Atlanta. We can text people. People can FaceTime us and get video and, and show us real-time things of what is going on there. And so it may be a little easier, but back then, they did not have those capabilities. If somebody was going to be a watchman for the city and they needed to know what was going on, they needed to have a way to have that communicated with them. And the only way they could really do it is by giving a runner a piece of paper and saying, run for that city, tell him what's going on. Could you imagine being the guy who was in charge of running from Jerusalem to Babylon, 500 miles? That would be a terrible job, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe, maybe AJ could do it because he's a fast runner back there, but for the rest of us, it'd probably kill us. He couldn't jump in a car and be there in seven hours. He couldn't get on a plane and be there in an hour. To be a watchman that far away meant someone had to come and let him know what was going on, so it was a challenge. And so the question that comes to mind is, why was he the watchman even though he was so far away? And this is where we turn to our main verses this morning in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 and 31, and this is what it says there. He said, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So to answer our question, the reason God had to ask Ezekiel to do this was because there was no one in the city that was willing to do it. See, it wasn't Ezekiel's job at that point. And if it had been Ezekiel's job, 
God wouldn't have gone to him and said, hey, buddy, I need you to be a watchman on the wall. God would have gone to him and said, bro, you're not doing your job. What's your problem? Quit slacking. Get up and do what you're supposed to do. See, God couldn't find anyone who was willing to stand up and fill the gaps, man up, take the role of the watchman in Jerusalem. And because of that, the walls of Jerusalem had gaps in them. There were literal gaps in the walls from the invasion by Babylon that we talked about a few minutes ago, but these gaps that God was talking about were also spiritual and not just physical. God was declaring to the city that those who were supposed to watch over the city spiritually had failed miserably and there were holes. There were gaps, and the enemy was going to exploit those gaps unless someone stood up and stood in the gap. But how were, the, how, how were, there, how were there gaps spiritually? What happened in the nation that uh, caused the spiritual walls of the city to fail? Well, we find that uh, failure in Ezekiel uh, chapter 10, and we're not going to turn there. Um, we're not going to read it just because of time, but, I, but uh, just write that down. Make note of that. And uh, some point, uh, later point this afternoon, go back and read that just to make sure that I'm telling you what happened there actually happened. But what happened was the spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets and all of those that were in charge of the land, uh, there were spiritual leaders in the land, they, they decided to use the temple to, to worship whatever they wanted to worship. It was no longer the center for worshiping God. They just worshiped the gods of the nations that surrounded them and everything else. And if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God before me. Well, the Israelites, that's what they were doing. They were taking and they were bringing other gods into the temple. And God tried to get their attention over and over again. He spoke and he spoke and he spoke. And he's like, guys, listen, come on, get it together. You're worshiping false gods. You need to stop this garbage, knock it off and get back on the right path. But no matter how many times God spoke, the people of Judah continued to ignore him. And so in chapter 10, it tells us that the glory of God got up and left the temple and then left the city of Jerusalem. And I know that word probably needs to be explained, the glory of God, because it's not something that, that we, we talk about on a regular basis, but it's the greatness, it's the awesomeness, it's the incredible, majestic presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the word actually means weight. And so what it's saying is it's the presence of God that fills a room that you can actually feel. You can feel the weight in there. And God's presence was constantly, was continually in the temple in Jerusalem. It filled it up. It was always there. But God had finally had enough, and he said, you know what? My glory is going to depart from here and leave because the city has been broken down. The people did not take their place on the wall to be the watchmen they were supposed to be spiritually. Instead, they did the things they wanted to do. They did the things that made them happy. They did the things that other people were doing instead of taking their place on the wall as a watchman for the city. See, this wasn't Ezekiel's job, as I already said. This belonged to the people of Jerusalem. And can I tell you that the church here in Mulberry is in a similar position? I'm not saying the church here, and what I mean by church is, I mean everybody who lives in Mulberry who follows Jesus. I'm not talking about Bam Church and First Baptist Church, but everybody who lives in Mulberry who's following Jesus, that's the church. I'm not saying the church here is worshiping goats and stuff like that that they did in the temple that caused God's glory to leave the area. What's happening is that our, as our society 
moves further and further away from a belief in God that calls something sin, as our society moves further from an acceptance of or at least tolerance of the practices of those who follow Jesus, the people of God, instead of standing on the walls of the city and going to battle, have hunkered down in the walls of their churches and tried to survive or else they've tried to get as close to the direction that the world is heading without losing their salvation. And that's destructive. Can I tell you that's not how we're going to survive? That if we adopt that kind of strategy, that's actually how we're going to be defeated? This is how we'll open the doors to the enemy and give him free reign over our city, give him free reign over our churches. Yes, maybe we personally will survive, but fam, church itself will not survive. The people of the city of Mulberry, they will not survive either. And I know this from firsthand experience because back in the spring, I started doing prayer walks around the city. I just started walking the streets of Mulberry three days a week and just praying for the city. And the things that I saw and the things that I've experienced in this show me that our city is in trouble here in Mulberry. Our city has been under a merciless assault from the enemy that continues to this day. And the reason that it has not ceased is because those of us who are followers of Jesus have not taken our position spiritually on the wall or in the gap to stand before God on behalf of our city but we also haven't even done it for our own church. Too many of us who follow Jesus, we live lives like there isn't this supernatural realm around us. Sure, we believe that Jesus is up there in heaven someplace and there's, yeah, some Satan and some demons and stuff going on, but we don't realize that we are engaged in an all-out battle and war each and every single day. Satan is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And too many times we just sit back and we say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal because we've got lives being destroyed. And we're called to engage him in spiritual battle. And now I can see some of the wheels spinning in some of your brains right now. You're, con- you're saying to yourself, uh-oh, I'm getting a little concerned. He's getting a little out there. He's getting a little weird. He's getting a little strange. If you want me to tell you how God wants you to be comfortable, if you want me to tell you how God wants you to be financially blessed, if you want me to tell you how you can have a nice home with a nice car, with a conflict-free life, with nice kids, a great spouse, and a life that everyone will be jealous of? I hate to tell you this, but following Jesus is not the path to those things. See, he tells us when we follow him that we're entering into a war zone. Okay? We're entering into a war That's why in the letter of Ephesians, he gave us some weapons and some armor to wear. Okay, he wouldn't tell us to put on some armor and grab some weapons if we weren't supposed to use them. Okay, they're not just there to be in our case to look nice. My dad used to have this gun rack. He, He had this gun. It was so pretty, and I always wanted to shoot it, and he never let me shoot it because it was too pretty to shoot. Uh, why is a gun too pretty to shoot? I just want it was a big gun, though. It was like it was a it was a 10-gauge shotgun. The barrel was like this long on it. 
I mean, that thing probably would have knocked me on my butt at 13. But, but yeah, this is, God didn't give us the armor and the, the, the stuff to fight with so that it could sit on a rack in a shelf. But you may say to yourself, well, wait a minute. I, how do I even know if I'm qualified for this sort of thing, for something like that? Well, let's head back to our text in Ezekiel 22. It says that God was looking for a man among them. It doesn't say he was looking for a prophet. He doesn't, it doesn't say he was looking for a spiritual superstar. It doesn't say he was looking for a pastor, priest, king, or holy man. Now, if there was one of those that was willing to step up, he would have said, all right, let's do this. But God didn't limit his search. He was looking for a man. He was looking for any man. And I know some of you, some of you ladies are either thinking to yourself one of two things. Oh, great, God's looking for a man. I get this one off. Or you're thinking, God is such a sexist. Why is he only looking for a man? Let me make some clarification here. This passage is referring to anyone, male or female, that's willing to be used to stand in the gap. How do I know this? I don't want to get too technical and bore you with all kinds of stuff, but about 200 B.C., uh, some Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek. Okay, because what had happened was in about 300 B.C., Alexander the Great, all of his armies marched through all of the known world at that time, conquered everything, and made everybody learn Greek. Well, 100 years later, that's the language that everyone spoke. That's the language that everyone wrote. That was the common language of the people. And so the Jewish leaders got together and said, we need to create a Bible that the common people can understand. And so they took the Hebrew Old Testament and they translated it into Greek. And when they translated this section of Ezekiel, they used the Greek word that means mankind, okay? They did not use the Greek word for man. They used the Greek word for mankind. And you got to understand what a big deal this is, okay? Because back in that culture, in the Hebrew culture, it was a male-dominated society. Women really didn't count as citizens, okay? You could divorce your wife if she burned your food, man, you could divorce your wife if you got home and the bathroom wasn't clean enough to your standards. And you want to know how you could divorce her? You just take her outside your house, say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. You're divorced from her. The party's over. So we got, we got easy divorces here in the United States. Think about how easy that one was, okay? I mean, you got, you got a pizza that was put in the oven with the cardboard still on it. Divorce three times, the party's over, right? But women were second-class citizens, and yet these men chose to translate this word as mankind. This means no one is exempt to stand in the gap. This means that all of us in this room, that our followers of Jesus have been called, that means that all of us in this room should be standing in the gap for Mulberry and Fam Church. We don't have an option God has called us to step into the middle of the battle. It will be fierce. It will be at times an ugly battle, but we cannot see this as an option no matter how ugly it gets. I mean, just think about this time of Ezekiel here. I mean, that was a real war that was being fought between Babylon and uh, Judah, and he was calling them to step out in the gap. Those walls were no joke. Okay, they were, they were eight feet thick, they were 39 feet high. They were made of stone. They were anchored to the bedrock. And somehow the Babylonians found a way to break through that wall. 
Today it'd be really easy, right? We just send off an F-22 fighter, take that wall out, maybe an M1A1 tank, punch a few holes in that thing, not a big deal. But back then it took months to breach a city wall like this. Fierce battling all around. And God still said, get up there, get on the wall, and fill the gap. Joe, if you can come back up. See, fam church, if we want to win the battle for Mulberry, if we want our church to advance, we cannot be like the people of Jerusalem and stand back, hunker down in our homes, and let the attack go on around us. See, God has given us the authority to step into the gaps in the wall and to go to war against the forces that are attacking us. Now, it's not an enemy like the Babylonians, but the city of Mulberry is under attack from different forces that we cannot see. If you were to go to urbandictionary.com and you were to put in Polk County, Florida, guess what comes up? Meth capital. Serious. That's what's thought of of our area. That's the image that's being portrayed around the country, because, actually around the world, because that's a, anybody can put urban terms into that. But our city is being torn apart, not just by meth, but by tons of things, by tons of addictions and life-controlling things that are literally destroying people's lives. And we could sit here and we could list all of the things that are bringing a hole in the wall, that are bringing a breach into our city. But see, that's not what's important. What we need to know is that there are gaps and that God has called us as believers to get up and stand in the gap. God has called us to get on the wall of our city and fight against the forces that are trying to destroy this city and trying to destroy this church. And we have to stand up and take it. It's ours. We have that power. We have been given that authority here in this city. And we need to engage those forces that are trying to take what's ours and not step away from the authority God has given us. Because if we don't, we're going to end up like the city of Jerusalem spiritually. See, ultimately, the failure of the people of God to take the gap led to the destruction of the city. The city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. was completely destroyed. They knocked down all of the walls. They burned everything in the city. They took the temple apart piece by piece. They didn't take their spiritual authority, and because of that, everything fell apart. Fam church, the same destiny awaits our church and community if we do not take our position on the wall. If we do not take our position in the gaps, I mean, that's what's happened in most of the inner cities of America. Spiritual forces began to attack our cities and the churches. Instead of manning up, putting on their armor, and going out and fight, they said, hey, look, out in the suburbs, it's much more peaceful, it's much more nice, there's not as much conflict, there's not as much battle, and they ran. We try to be safe, but that mentality has left our cities in the shape they are in today. See, Jesus' call on those who follow him is not come and follow me so that you can live nice, safe, prosperous lives. 
Jesus' call is to put it all on the line. And that's not as fun. But see, that's our call. That's who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. To go out there, put it all on the line, and fight the battle.